Welcome to the Craft Hot Sauce Podcast. This is your host, Brian Rollman, founder at crafthotsauce.com and cook and owner at Crack Sauce as well. Today, we're bringing you an interview and conversation with Chef Chris Schlesinger. Chris was born and raised in Virginia, where he developed his love for barbecue, spicy food, and live fire cooking. Chris put Boston on the map as a chili head destination after starting the East Coast Grill in Inman Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Customers fell in love with their mustard-based scotch bonnet hot sauce, inner beauty sauce, and a spicy dish that people weren't supposed to order quickly turned into the number one destination for chili heads with the creation of Hell Nights. Besides talking about the fire from peppers in this conversation, we also get some tips from Chris about grilling and balancing spice, heat, and flavor when creating sauces and dishes. Chris Schlesinger has won multiple James Beard Awards, including Best Chef of the Northeast in 1996, and his cookbook, co-written with his pal Doc Willoughby, The Thrill of the Grill, won the James Beard Cookbook Award. I highly recommend checking out the cookbook. I'm halfway through it, and I've written down so many recipes and can't wait to try it out uh, once it gets a little bit warmer. And there's like a really great narrative to the cookbook as well. If you're not already signed up for our newsletter, be sure to check out our website and subscribe on crafthotsauce.com. We have some new hot sauces, some new articles, and some events coming up uh, for spicy events around the world. So be sure to check those out as well. Okay, let's get into the episode with Chef Chris Schlesinger. Thank you for joining me. Uh, we got, we got it's on val- we're recording this on Valentine's Day today. That's right. Do, do you do you ever do any like uh, Valentine Day cooking traditions or, or any uh, Valentine's Day dishes that have been memorable? Well, no. In the restaurant business, it's always a good night because it's generally not on the weekends, and you can uh, you know it's everybody's bringing their dates out. So a lot of a lot of tables at two, and it's always a good night for the restaurant business. So yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to, to kind of start off setting the scene about how I first heard about Inner Beauty hot sauce in the, in the East Coast Grill. And it, it starts with kind of messing around, making my own hot sauces when I had some excess habaneros and, and ghost peppers. And, and my uncle uh, was also trying some of these hot sauces and, and he was, had made some. Um, but he took a trip to, to Nevis with his wife. And this was a trip before I was born in the early 90s. And Nevis is a super small island in the Caribbean uh, with kind of a volcano in the middle and, and beaches all around. Uh, and they were looking for a place to eat. And someone suggested this restaurant at kind of the top of this hill. And they walked up this kind of narrow street and they thought they got to this person's living room. But the person was like, no, no, no this, is, this is the restaurant. Like, uh, what, what do you want to eat? Like, we, we can we got six hours so we can, we can really cook anything that you want. And, and they were like, Oh, we'll, we'll de- defer to you. Um, so she went down to uh, a fish pier and, and uh, they said my, my aunt and uncle that they like spicy food. And so she made this fish stew uh, that had some pepper sauce and, and they described this as like this beautiful flavor, but it was so spicy, but like really good. 
Um, and so they asked her like, what did they put in for the spice? And, and, uh, she said that there's this woman on the Island that makes this scotch bonnet pepper sauce and, and sells to, to restaurants and, and people. Um, so my uncle Paul came home with six bottles that quickly he went through and, and he was living in mission Hill in Boston, um, and was searching for kind of this flavor and experience again. Uh, and he found it, uh, and, and he found it. Uh, in Inman Square in Cambridge at, at East Coast Grill. Uh, and he saw uh, this hot sauce that had this kind of same yellowish color. And when he tried it, it was like the flavor and experience that he was looking for, but just a, with a little bit of a different flair. Um, and so I've been asked by a lot of people uh, then when they find out that I have a hot sauce business and podcast and uh, they ask, oh, have you have you tried um, Inner Beauty hot sauce? And, and I think it, it's... Um, you can't really talk about hot sauce in Boston or the, or the Northeast without mentioning the kind of influence of it. But um, you're the one that is, is kind of the creator of the, the hot sauce. And, and um, can you start off, start us off by sharing the story behind creating Inner Beauty hot sauce? Well, you know, Connie, you were talking about that Caribbean experience of your aunt and uncle. The first time I saw it was down in Barbados and it's pretty standard you know, scotch bonnet, mustard, fruit sauce throughout the Caribbean. So I had had it down there. And um, at the restaurant at the East Coast Grill, we opened in the mid 80s. And that was, you know, wood fire grills were just starting to come on and people were starting to appreciate spicy food. And we were doing a lot of food that was inspired by Southeast Asia and Latin America and stuff like that. So some of the stuff was pretty spicy. And they would, some of the guests would come back and say, well, that's not hot enough for me. And I would go, well, you know, I'm not really trying to do the hot thing. I'm trying to honor these, these flavors. So I kind of started to get a little tired of it. So we made this dish called pasta from hell. And yeah. that had that we made the inner beauty sauce uh, to put in there. And, you know, it's basically pureed peppers. And I, at briefing, I would tell the wait staff, you know, this is just kind of a joke. So if a customer orders this, tell them not to get it and really try to talk them out of it. <laughs> and, and that was the start of the whole hotter than hell nights. And, you know, we just we ended up getting a big reputation for it. But the, the sauce, um, you know, inner beauty hot sauce, we, we uh, more put it in the pint bottles. That was kind of original. I mean, you saw it throughout the Caribbean sold that way in liquor bottles, but not so much in America. And we had a, you know, kind of humorous label on it. And uh, it really took off. We tried to manufacture it for a long time and did okay with it, but it got tricky once we got up to higher volumes and supermarkets and things like that. So we kind of ran out of steam on it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I've, uh, I've heard a lot about um, the the Hell Nights uh, or Hotter Than Hell Nights, and what what was that pasta from Hell? Like, what what, what did it have the inner beauty sauce on it? I'm just curious. Yeah, what, I was where, where big, the well, heat come from? Oh yeah, we started with inner beauty, and then we you know then we started incorporating. I mean, we had these nights. We had like three or three set of three nights, three or four times a year, and okay. You know, we'd promote it online and we would have to set up three or four people answering the phones. We'd, we'd put it on Saturday morning at, at 9 a.m. And by 1030, we had 1200 seats sold out. 
and people would line up and it was the stuff was a lot of, you know we tried to stay true to the cuisines a lot of cuisines have genuinely hot food but people that are into this hot stuff have to you know somehow go up the mountain so we had to have the one dish pasta from hell which kind of morphed into it was basically chile scorpions or ghosts or vipers in there and if you finish it you get a t-shirt i mean we had people pe- passing out ambulances had to come wow and then we'd have like there's a couple there was this one 12 year old uh asian kid that used to come in and eat a whole bowl no problem you know but it was uh we had you know everybody's in uh, dressed up in leather we had you know really loud metal music playing and we had a guy dressed up as a devil and you know all <laughs> sorts of stuff but it we ran that for 10 15 years sold out every time and people had so much fun wow yeah i, I love uh i heard about the uh meatball russian roulette oh um, yeah so we used to yeah one one person would get it yeah <laughs> yeah so, so they had meatballs and one of them was was it like filled with ghost peppers or something so right. i didn't know if you yeah we have we're Russian roulette, deviled eggs. We always did Russian roulette. That was fun. People, somebody would get burned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peppers, have, I, I feel like in the last 10 years, uh, 20 years, even like hot sauce and, and uh, heat seeking has, has become such a, a thing. Were kind of scotch bonnets, uh, so those were some of the hotter kind of peppers, I think, that were accessible what what do you like about scotch bonnet well i think scotch that's my favorite pepper i think for me a lot you know that heat without flavor is just heat you know so as a as a chef you always want you just don't want that single note you want the flavor with it and a lot of these chilies you know are getting so the heat is the main thing and there's not a lot of flavor behind it and if you look at the the scotch bonnets they came on kind of early and that was the jamaican and that was pretty much the West Indian thing. And uh, I think they represent, you know, the right amount of heat, which pretty damn hot, but it was also aromatic heat. And then that, that variety kind of morphed into the habanero, which to me is, I mean, that's, I don't know, I don't know where they started growing it, but that when we, we'd have to source our peppers for the hot sauce, we ended up making it in Costa Rica. And um, you, you didn't see a lot of commercially grown Scotch bonnets. The habaneros seem to take over. To me, that's a more hotter, less flavorful uh, chili than the than the uh, Scotch bonnet. Yep, yep. I, when you, when you're making like a hot sauce, I, I always have kind of a philosophy: is that like you, you need your heat, you need liquid. Um, and, and then you, I, I call it like the guts, like besides the, those other things, like what, what else are you adding to it? But do you have any kind of like philosophies or, or elements that you think like kind of make really a, a flavor forward sauce? Well, I get, I get my inspirations from, you know, flavors that exist naturally in cuisines, you know, so with the, you know, with the Latin set of flavors, you, you know, you have the chilies, the dried chilies that they use to, to bulk it up and the different spices and, um, you know, Asia, you know, might do, you know, Near East and stuff like that, more uh, chutneys and things like that. So I, I think that, you know, each, it's a vehicle, you know, it's a vehicle to deliver 
many flavors and many different sensations and heat being one of them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's something I, I noticed that uh, you, you put into, you, you put into the inner beauty sauce is you put in some spices. No, I, I think that's a note. I mean, if you look at, you know, Indian cuisine, that's probably the cuisine that uses the most spices and they have, they deal with them in a bunch of different ways. You know, they, they'll roast them whole and grind them. Or like when you make curries, you, you cook the spices with the onions, but yep. generally that they, the Indian chefs will find a way to cook the spices before going into that. They very seldom add just raw spices. Cool. Cool. Um, so you're from Virginia. Uh, and what, what brought you up to Boston? I uh, came up to uh, college for a year at Northeastern, flunked out and started washing dishes and found a career in the restaurant business. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I uh, um, w- did you go to culinary school before uh, kind of doing the washing dishes or, or was that kind of let you into the world of I had dropped out of college and I was at uh, my folks beach cottage in uh, Virginia and a friend came over the house I was unemployed watching tv and a friend came over the house and said his sister worked at a restaurant and all the cooks had walked out did did I want to go cook and I said no I didn't I was watching tv and my grandmother, who was there with us, said, no, you, you go, <laughs> works, you know. And I went in the kitchen, and the kitchen was a disaster area. It looked like a bomb had gone off. And the owner said, go grab a beer and go start washing those dishes. And it was it was love at first sight, man. The environment was just total chaos, you know, and being a, um, you know, having a little ADD. A lot of ADD guys in the business, so it, it uh, worked out great. I was offered the professional job that later that night in a bar I got the dishwasher's job and ended up working my way up to like sous chef there and my dad suggested uh culinary institute the CIA yeah in Hyde Park and that was 77 so that well so 75 so this was way before the food craze had hit this country you know and being a chef was kind of like being a truck driver or something it's you know votech but Coming out 77, 78, it started, you know, Nouvelle Cuisine started coming and uh, it's a great time to, great time to be in the profession. Yeah. And, and um, I, I've like, I've heard from, from chefs and, and that you can get a lot out of culinary school, but I feel like it's kind of like what you put into it. Um, and I guess it was someone without any formal cooking education, uh, what would you kind of describe culinary school is like? Well, I think the main thing it did for um, me and people of that ilk, I mean, we were, we were kids that didn't make it in college. You know, we were, the, we were the not so bright kids that ended up going and working in bars and restaurants. And what it did to us is taught us it was a profession, you know, it taught us management account accounting learned about wine learned about spirits uh facilities design cooking different cuisines it just a you know it's a two-year program program but you you came out feeling like you were a professional cook you know you were a professional in the business with a, not a lot of people in the country at that time certainly not a lot of young people in the country at that time 
brought that sense of professionalism to the business. Mm -hmm. And that's what funded the kind of the beginnings of the restaurant craze and the food craze that were, seems like there's no end in sight, right? I mean, yeah. everybody's totally into kids and 12 year old kids cooking. I mean, all these shows on TVs. I mean, it's amazing. It's a very, turns out to be a very fortunate career choice at the time. It didn't look that promising. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I guess well, like when you were uh, finishing up at CIA, uh, what were you looking for? I wanted to travel. So uh, my first job, uh, I was thinking about going to maritime uh, school, you know, to learn how to be a chef on a boat. But so I sat, I, I settled for a chef on a private yacht out of mm -hmm. uh, Palm Beach. And it turns out that they didn't go any place unless they had land on both sides of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I traveled around a little bit. I worked the seasons in uh, Florida, you know, Miami, Palm Beach, Hollywood, and then uh, ended back up in Boston uh, working for some pretty serious guys right at the beginning of Nouvelle Cuisine. Cool. I feel like uh, mentorship and continual learning is a, is a big thing in cooking um it, it was that something that you were kind of continually thinking about like how you could be learning and becoming a better chef i don't know if, if you kind of thought about how you thought about learning and improving well i was i was putting in the time traveling and you know my jobs in miami were you know big country clubs and you know big dinner theaters and it wasn't particularly inspiring and then i I uh, got a job at the Harvest in Boston and worked for guys. And they had sent a chef to France. Jimmy Burke went to France, came back. All the waiters were totally into the wine, people into the food. We had briefings where we'd go out and, you know, share stuff with the staff. And everybody, you know, we'd go out at night and talk about cooking and talk about food. And it was just a period of time where, you know, young people – you know, we're just totally getting into it and love doing, you know, working doubles. I mean, it's, it's you know, cook's life is, uh, you know, can be a lot of fun, but it's also very taxing, a big commitment. And we all loved it. And we did the, you know, go to like, buy all the uh, cooking magazines you can buy, buy all the cookbooks you can buy, read the newspapers, travel, eat at other people's restaurants. We were just totally into it. We That's loved awesome. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like, uh, I feel like Inman Square and Cambridge and Boston had a lot of really cool restaurants and things that have gone on to uh, much bigger. Like I think of like legal seafood. I've just heard, heard just like just about how it was just a very modest, but really focusing on incredible uh, flavors and everything. But can you kind of describe a little bit of what it was like in Inman Square and, and some other kind of restaurant, like kind of what to expect kind of around the area in the, the 80s and their early 90s? Well, we opened the East Coast Grill in Inman Square in 1985, and it was kind of off the beaten path a little bit. And, you know, I think with restaurants, especially small chef-owned restaurants, they go to neighborhoods where they can get good deals, right? So it yep. was it was not uh, – uh, any type of culinary center there. Although there was, I don't know if you ever remember, some people might remember the Cajun Yankee up the street in the, in the mid eighties when that Cajun, you know, Paul Perdome black and thing was coming in. 
so th there was, you know, in the SNS old standby there, um, and the Turtle Cafe, which we took over, was like the original Cambridge Fern Barn. So there was a, a group of people that were used to coming to that area to eat. But uh, Inman Square, you know, even now, 30, 40 years later, I think has a similar character where you don't see they're not changed there. And, you know, you see these other squares, uh, Kendall, you know, Central, uh, Harvard yeah. have changed dramatically where Inman Square has has stayed kind of true to its roots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and was that like East Coast Grill, that was the first restaurant you opened up, uh, right? Is that right? Yes, yeah. Uh, okay, cool. What was like your vision for it, open, opening it up? Well, see, the guys I work with, Jimmy, Jimmy Burke, was my first chef at the harvest and he went on at the age of 23 or 24 to open Allegro in Waltham and later the Tuscan Grill, Iguana Cantina, a bunch of restaurants. So I figured if Jimmy could do it, I could do it. And that's the way a lot of us look at it that way. If this guy's doing it, I can do it. And I had worked in white tablecloth restaurants and didn't really have any interest doing that style of cuisine. So we were fortunate where I'd like to, I grew up grilling, eating barbecue as a kid. And we were into doing casual margaritas and having fun. And we'd, we had the wood grill, spicy flavors. And which seems like everybody's doing that now. But at the time, that was pretty unique. The Southwest thing, the mesquite thing was just coming in. The chili thing was just coming in. It was just starting to be recognized that you could have the concept of casual fine dining where it could be in a casual setting, but it could be high quality food. So we were just very fortunate. We hit the things that I was into doing were, weren't innovative to me, but were innovative at the time and caught a lot of trends that were happening. And we were, we were pretty busy from the first time or they had a review in the globe, Robert Levy back in the day, he started as saying things are loose and easy at the East Coast Grill, maybe a little too loose and easy. I mean, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. That's great. That's great. Open kitchen so that everybody could see what's going on in the kitchen. We're drinking beers all night. You know, it was uh, it was like everybody was in on the party. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I think like that can. I, I'd imagine that probably contributed to the energy there. Just like. Uh, you, your staff um, and just being able to see it, but then also the customers too. Uh, and, and I feel like it, it's almost kind of like a chicken or the egg. Like what, what's like, who's contributing the energy, but it's kind of going, going around. Yeah. But cooking over, over wood fire grill, I'd imagine is that that's a lot more work, right? Yeah. It's a lot. It's yeah. It's well, you figure it out, but to start, yeah, that it's not like you don't turn on a stove oven 450 you know you got to kind of find where the 450 is or you can't turn it from high to medium and you know so it's 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 more dynamic you have to watch your fire when to feed it when not to feed it yep yep we we actually interviewed somebody that scorched their peppers before they ferment them over wood fire what is it about cooking over live fire do you think makes the food taste better well, I think it impart, imparts a flavor to it, you know, between the smoke and the high heat. I mean, I think it's 
the, the flavor, resulting flavor from grilling to me is more about the high, the interaction of the high heat with the meat and with the little smoke dynamic in, but it's about the caramelization of the meat, you know, and kind of, they call it the, in cooking the milliard reaction where when something's exposed to high heat, it turns one compound into many, many different compounds. The outside of bread versus the inside roasted coffee beans versus green coffee beans. It's a, it's a way to, to develop flavor. And for me and the stuff that I was into eating, um, as opposed to some of the French stuff that I was cooking, you know, if you poach a fish, you put a butter sauce on it, right? But if you grill a pork chop, that's going to have a demonstrative flavor. So that's going to take more additional, you know, a salsa, a spicy salsa, a chutney or something like that, where it's just a different, uh, more heightened flavor style of cooking than some of the traditional European stuff. Yep. Yep. And it seems like that was kind of where you were kind of more attracted towards with kind of the, the bigger, bolder flavors. And would you say that was influenced by a lot of your, your travel to, towards those places? And Well, I kind of dated the, the hot stuff, at least to Barbados. A friend and I kind of went on our, you know, young adult epic surf journey to Barbados. And we spent a, li- uh, a winter living on the East Coast there at Besheba. And, uh, you know, we kind of ran low on money. And so we'd, we'd end up shopping in the stores with the locals and going to local markets. And they had, I really hadn't eaten a bunch of hot stuff before that. And then we just got into these hot peppers and, you know, fishing and cooking and it, it just, and being in the markets and seeing that there, there are the whole different styles of cooking. And then, you know, travel a lot to, you know, countries with decent waves and, and high, you know, mid eighties and waves. So, you know, a lot of that, you know, Mexico, Costa Rica, you know, they have that style of food, which is, I think the flavor profiles of tropical equatorial cuisines are really different than the flavor presentations of, you know, main European cuisines. At, at some point you decided to sell the East Coast Grill. What, was, was that tough, kind of let, letting that go? No, it was no. <laughs> 20, 27 years we had it and we had a great run. And, uh, you know, restaurant years are kind of like dog years. So, uh, yeah. you know, it was, uh, it was my time to, my time to go, so. Well, that was actually probably not the, the answer that I expected just because like <laughs> you probably put so much like heart and soul into it. And I feel like that's something that I personally with my uh, hot sauce business have had some challenges with is kind of letting go and, and, and trusting people. But I guess when it's a restaurant and you're slammed, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta give people chances, gotta trust them oh, yeah. and everything but is that something that you kind of experienced like with building a team it- well I think that was one of the things I mean I enjoy cooking for sure but uh once you start running a restaurant we you know quickly bought another one I've been involved in multiple restaurants you kind of transition a little bit you're you're less focused on the cooking yep. and you're more focused on the organization team building and my partner, Carrie Wheaton, and I had a shared vision that we wanted, you know, that we had worked for yellers and screamers over the year, 
we had worked for people that, you know, the restaurant business never known for your, you know, gracious and kind, compassionate employers. So we wanted to be uh, a certain type of employer. And I think that was, you know, treating the, treating the folks with respect and having a good time and trying to be fair and, you know, pay fair wage and all that. And I think that builds, uh, that builds that camaraderie and that teamwork and that pays off and that shows in the organization. I mean, you go in the East coast grill, I mean, people, I, I, I think one of the things that people liked about it was everybody's working so hard and smiling and laughing, you know, it's like you go to hear a band, you go to hear live music and they're playing hard, but they're looking at each other and smiling and laughing. It's just a, uh, you know, good shared experience. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I know you have written some award winning cookbooks. And, and in fact, you have a really big fan in Concord mass, which is my, uh, my friend's dad who, who showed me his grilling Bible, which is, which is just a, uh, a binder of torn out pages from a number of your uh, cookbooks and, and uh, with you and doc Willoughby that put together. Um, but he said that the thrill of the grill is, is a must have for people that like me, just like kind of know how to grill just, just enough to be dangerous. Uh, do, do you have any kind of tips or suggestions for kind of uh, improving some of your grilling skills? Well, I think the main thing is to build a, on your grill to have a big enough grill where you can have like two different levels of fire. So if you're talking in your basic Weber, like all pile the coals up really hot on half the Weber kind of and leave the other half of the Weber without any coals underneath them. And this would allow you to kind of sear on one side and get your brown you know, you know, caramelization done on one side, but it's going to be the way you want it on the outside, but it's not going to be the way you want it on the inside, right? So then you move it away from the direct fire over to this area that has more ambient heat. It doesn't have the direct heat of the fire. Yep. So it's, it's in effect searing it on top of the stove and then putting it in the oven. Yep. So if you have enough, I think having enough room, I mean, what, what the Weber people always tell you, which I'm totally against, is they'll fill the grill, evenly fill the grill with coals, put chicken on the thing and cover it. You know, and this, this keeps flare ups down, but I believe that if you have any type of fat dripping into the coals, that a terrible substance, just a toxic, foul substance, bays your food, this greasy smoke. Okay. So but I don't know. But if like, it's, it's open air, that wouldn't kind of. It's stick open in. air. Or if you, you know, the way you cook barbecue is indirect, generally speaking, right? Where you, you have your, fire on one side and your pork butt on the other side. So the smoke goes up yeah. through the pork butt, but generally the juices from the pork butt are dripping down directly into the fire. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Cause, and then, cause that could, cause then that way when you're grilling something, you have it hot and then, yeah, you kind of mentioned that you can put if, Sometimes like you want to, depending on what you're cooking, you want it at different temperatures. And then that way you have just flexibility and putting stuff sure. different places. Yeah. Okay. We get the steak the way you want it on the outside and then move it over and finish it cooking it on the other side. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, also in 1999, you opened up kind of the, the seafood centric uh, 
back eddy in Westport, Mass. I know uh, seafood ha- has been a big focus for you. Uh, I- I'd imagine that must be pretty cool being able to work closely with like local fishermen and, and farmers. Well, this area where we're presently in West, living in Westport full time now and we, we vacationed here and owned a second home here for a long time. And the back eddy became available and the area here on the South Coast, we're right on the border of Rhode Island and Massachusetts, reminded me a lot of where I grew up in Virginia, where we had a lot of coastal farms, a lot of water, a lot of estuaries. And I, I had known a bunch of the fishermen down here, big farm community, uh, livestock, uh, shell fishing, oyster cultivation. So, you, you know, farmers coming by all the time to come by for dinner, drop stuff off, fishermen coming through for their boats, dropping fish off. So it was really, you know, uh, you know, everybody makes such a big deal out of the farm to table stuff. And, and we were in an environment where that stuff was really, really worked out. And no, it's great. Beautiful spot. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll definitely, I would love to, to stop by uh, sometime and experience it. Is there anything that in particular that you found you've been really focused on recently? I'm fortunate. I mean, we hang out with a, a, a group of people that are in the food business. My, my good friends, uh, Isan and Valerie Gerdahl own uh, Fromage Kitchen. You know, my co-writer Doc's still involved. Uh, my friend Steve Johnson down here used to have a restaurant in Tiverton. My nephew owns um, Alcove up in Boston next yeah. to the garden. So I, you know, and I dabble a little investing in restaurants and keep my fingers in, but just, no, I mean, I love the business. I love eating. I love traveling, drinking, all that. So just, um, you know, feel fortunate to have come out the other side of the restaurant business. <laughs> and yeah. able to do a little traveling and eating and, you know, get to go into other people's restaurants and say stuff about. Them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Chris, well, uh, you've been like, I feel like such an inspiration for, for me, other cooks, chili heads, and definitely some help kind of embrace the community and eccentricity. Um, so just wanted to say thank you for, for joining us. And uh, it's been a pleasure getting to hear more about your story and, and uh, background. So Great. Thank you very much. I enjoyed your sauces, too. I'm through two of them. I'm done I'm working two of them last night at the Super Bowl. So. Thank you for tuning into that episode. If that doesn't get you pumped up for spring and barbecue, uh, I don't know what does. And I guess if you're down under right now and, and enjoying the, the last piece of your summer, I guess uh, embrace it and enjoy the pepper harvest. But yeah, we're, we're getting excited for the spring coming up. We got our seedlings coming in and we have a, another great podcast guest uh, coming up with Marshall's Hot Sauce. But if you can't wait till that recording is out, head over to our website, crafthotsauce.com. We have 150 different maker stories from 20 different countries, and we got that all tagged. So if you want to kind of check out stories about fermentation or fire roasting or people and makers from Australia or from South Carolina, you, you can check out all that on our website and be sure to subscribe to our uh, monthly newsletter, which will be going out on April's Fool's Day. So uh, thank you for listening. Please 
subscribe to the podcast and we would love uh, a cheeky little review and rating and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.